welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Uh, well, today we're going to talk about a man who doesn't always make the news, especially outside of the academic uh, kind of economic policy circles, but a man by the name of Justin Lin. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to him in his using his Western name, Justin Lin, but a lot of people may know him as Lin Yifu. And uh, and again, I have a feeling, Kobus, that most of our listeners are not familiar with, with Justin Lin. Uh, but if you follow Chinese economics uh, and you follow World Bank politics, uh, Justin Lin is actually a very important character. And there was an article that appeared in Canada's Globe and Mail this week called uh, The Pramatic Disruptor Behind China's Economic Miracle. And of course, the reason why we're talking about it here on the China and Africa podcast is because Justin Lin is now making the rounds, uh, and he's been doing it for quite some time in Africa. And he's really been talking to a lot of African governments about the Chinese model. And this is where Justin Lin has an enormous amount of credibility, is in part because he is one of the chief intellectual architects of China's economic renaissance that has produced the greatest economic boom in human history. And in many ways, what he's been able to do and what he advocates so strongly is the antithesis of what the Western liberal kind of economic consensus has been coming out of the IMF and the World Bank and the University of Chicago kind of school of thought, which is deregulation, limited government, and really promoting business. Whereas at the same time, Lin, who himself is a graduate of the University of Chicago, a PhD from there, one of the first Chinese to ever get a PhD from the University of Chicago, uh, is has a very different mindset that the government plays an incredibly important role, a very active state. He's also on the, on the belief that political reform and economic reform do not go hand in hand. And this is, again, a very controversial uh, message that comes out because we in the West oftentimes tie the two together. And what Justin Lin puts forth is he says that economic reforms, infrastructure development, technical development, educational reform, those are the most important things and the political reforms will follow later. So, Kobitz, that's a little bit of background behind Justin Lin. Oh, and one very important point, Kobitz. Justin Lin was born in Taiwan at the height of the Cold War between Taiwan and China. And in 1979, back when China was still, you know, coming out of the cloud of the Cultural Revolution, Justin Lin, who was born as an elite there, and he was in the army and he was deployed on one of the remote islands close to China in the middle of the night, swam and defected to the mainland. And this was, you know staggering as to what happened. So Justin Lind is, is more than just a legend in economic circles. He is also, he's got this legendary status because of his, you know, his, his defection from Taiwan to China. So that's a little bit of background. Kobus, take us into the influence and the ideas that Justin Lin is proposing for Africa, in particular, what was brought up in this story by Ian Marlowe in the Globe and Mail. Yeah, this is very interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, traditional Western ideas of development, um, they, you know, kind of, how can I say, like, ideas about development and democracy tend to have a, there's a certain kind of chicken and egg you know, kind of feeling to them, um, and in Western th Western thought about this, the, the relationship is that liberal liberalization, 
the creation of civic institutions um, and kind of liberalization of trade um, and democracy will lead to economic development. And, um, you know, obviously this has been driving um, policy at the World Bank for a very long time. Um, but Lin is taking it from the other side um, and he is pushing a much more kind of East Asia focused way of thinking um, in which democratization um, is seen in a more kind of instrumentalist way in the sense that um, at some stage, uh, you know, kind of once a certain level of, of economic growth has been achieved, then you find that then there's the natural space for, for democratization. Um, you know, so it's a completely different, like other other way around kind of way of thinking. Um, and the, the stuff that he's advising for Africa um sees a much greater role for the state and particularly the uh, kind of a role for the state in shepherding um, economic growth. Um, you know, uh, seeing what, what, the, what the strengths are, identifying the strengths, the, the potential in, in the country, um, what the needs are, and then kind of directing development in, the, in those directions. So it is, there is this kind of idea of this kind of wise state that needs to, you know, kind of that, that would act um, for, for the good of the entire country. So he's brought up this idea that has been long dormant, I mean, probably for 20 or 30 years of import substitution. Now, this was a very controversial policy back in the 70s and early 80s when emerging, actually even probably even before, uh, when emerging markets and particularly in the developing world would do import substitution. And the idea is, is that they would block foreign imports and then produce a product themselves. Now, this led to economic chaos in many countries, in part because uh, a lot of countries were not well equipped to, uh, to produce cars or to produce higher value added products in, in lieu of imports. But the idea was that if we import it, if we make it domestically, we can then uh, avoid having to export our foreign currencies to bring in imports. Okay, so Justin Lin, he's reviving this idea. And this is what is so controversial today. And so he was in Ethiopia, and he was into the market. And the example that was brought forth in this article was the idea, I think it was matchsticks that he had, and they were imported. So he goes to the prime minister and he says, you know, can't you not make matchsticks here yourself? And that then led to a conversation about shoes and led to a conversation about manufacturing. And now increasingly, we are seeing the growth of Ethiopia's manufacturing sector in part due to Chinese investment. Hua Jin, the Chinese shoe manufacturer, now has uh, you know hundreds of employees who are building shoes there and leather goods, which is something that Ethiopia is very well known for. And the idea there is that they're producing in the domestically, creating jobs, creating value and not having to import. So do you think, Kobus, after a half a century of IMF, World Bank-directed aid programs and economic refinance programs and economic reform programs, that Africa is ready for a different idea and will, you know, particularly from China, and has the ability to break away from the Western consensus? Yeah, I, I think I think there's definitely a willingness. Um, you know, I think there's definitely a disenchantment with with Western models um, and with the West generally. Um, and I think you know, I think there's definitely an openness to to new kind of ideas. I think also there's traditionally in Africa a strong kind of state centered way of thinking. You know, um, it it is it is a kind of economy that that tends to lend itself to monopolies, um, and the you know, and and particularly also political uh, monopolies, where where a, a party would stay in in power for a long time, much longer than than people are used to in the West, and I think there. 
I, I want to like pick at the Globe and Mail article a little bit because it seems to me that what they obviously I mean it's a three page article so they they could they couldn't get into into these issues as deeply as they as they might may, maybe should have but um you know kind of the, that issue of like how long a political party is is in power is crucial to um to Lynn's own work um so he he published a paper with with um Anne Harrison um at the University of Pennsylvania um where they made the point that one of the one of the big big problems in African economy is that the um the the Political parties tend to stay in power for so long, so they made the point that you know that that actually um, African African companies are not they don't have a productivity problem. Um, they actually are pretty produ- pretty productive, considering the kind of the the problems they face. The, but but they held back by a lack of infrastructure, um, by a lack of lending capital, um, but also particularly by the fact that political parties stay in power for so long. Um, and that, and they actually made this point that the longer the party, the single party, stays in power, the lower the, the kind of the per company productivity and and growth rates become. Um, so you know, kind of, so if you bring it back to Ethiopia, I mean, is there more monopolistic? government in Africa than Ethiopia. You know, kind of, I mean, we, uh, a while ago we talked about about telecoms in Ethiopia and the way that the government is essentially wrecking the internet economy in, in Ethiopia in order to protect the monopoly there. So, you know, kind of, uh, it's the, that that kind of like frustrated me actually a little bit about the article. Well, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, the, the duration of political power. And this is, again, where China can offer a model. And, you know, Kobus, I've talked about this a number of different times that I firmly believe, and very few people agree with me on this one, but I'll say it, though, again, that, that there is a war for ideas out there. And, and there, there are three main kind of verticals. There is the kind of Western liberal economic theory. This is something called the Washington Consensus, which I think is an inaccurate description because the European model and the American model are, are quite different. But nonetheless, they, they all support the Western, you know, low, you know, low tariffs, free trade, uh, the NAFTA type of thing, WTO, NAFTA, free trade. Then there is the religious fundamentalist. This is Boko Haram. This is Al-Qaeda. This is the, the movements that we're seeing across the Middle East. And, and then also the, the Pentecostal Christian movements, the, which are, which these are extreme, very strong. That's yeah. right. So extreme religious movements. Um, and then the third pillar is what I'm calling you know, the China model. And the China model is authoritarian capitalism and the state-run capitalism. And these are the three kind of ideas. If you talk about this with Americans, um, they're, they're very dismissive of it, even academics. And they say, no, there is no war for ideas. And, and I've spoken with U.S. diplomats about this idea. And not only do they reject it, they think it's in, they, they actually just think it's stupid. But here we see Justin Lin really proposing a different model for African leaders. And one of the key kind of distinctive characteristics of the Chinese model is that they have term limits. So presidents are in for 10 years, and then there's a peaceful transfer of power. We saw that from Deng Xiaoping to uh, Jiang Zemin, Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. And, and this is one of the things that insulates China from what happened in North Africa during the Arab Spring, where people, as you pointed out, African leaders were staying in power for, for decades, generations, in fact. And so I think in some ways... What Justin Lin and what the Chinese model are proposing is this idea of a more flexible, dynamic, authoritarian capitalism. And in the model that I think Paul Kagame is working on, 
And he is this, you know, this authoritarian capitalist who's turned, you know, and leveraged every part of Western guilt about the their inactivity and in, in, in inaction during the the uh, the massacre and the genocide to his best advantage. And yet, we don't have the civil and political rights that I think the West wants. But the economic reforms, the infrastructure development, the educational development is there. The question is, will Paul Kagame? follow the Chinese model and maybe step down after a while and train a professional technocratic bureaucracy? Or will he go the Robert Mugabe, Ethiopia, and as you pointed out, too many different, you know, African leaders stay in power too long. But democracy and economic development is what the Chinese are refuting in terms of those are linked. You can have very, very strong economic development, which is not necessarily westernization, without having the democracy. And this is one of the ideas that I think that African people and leaders and and certainly academics are wrestling right now as to what makes the most sense for their societies. I mean, yeah, I, I also think so. I mean, what, one thing that I'd actually like to ask you about is, is one of the paradoxes for me about China is how, on the one hand, they have such a, a, a unified, almost monolithic um, kind of party system, political system, um, you know, kind of where there's essentially no competition, right? I mean, there's no, there's no like, there is no political of, competition. There's no, there's no real competition of ideas in the public sphere, you uh, know, kind of in the way that we know it. In I, I wouldn't okay, say that, that. That's that's bad. There are ideas. That, uh, yeah. There is no political party competition. So there is no yes, rival that, faction I mean. that yes. will challenge the Communist Party. There's there's no formalized process where these ideas are fought out. No, you know, kind of in in, in the sense, you know, kind of they, they they are fought out in places like cyberspace, but they're not fought out in a you know kind of election you know kind of battle to the death like no. in the way that it's done in the U.S. Correct. Um, but at the same time, there is this incredibly like almost hair raising level of commercial competition where the you know kind of with this real cutthroat kind of you know kind of fight between different corporations for market share in China. Um, and I think in, in the African, you know, from, from an African perspective, I, I always wonder how they manage to do, have both of those at the same time. How do they have to they manage to have such kind of like robust competition in, in, you know, kind of commercial competition while not having that kind of like open competition in the political sphere? Because in Western thinking, the one, the, the, the two are linked, right? right? I mean, you have you have competition for ideas and you have competition for ideas in the marketplace. Um, but it, it doesn't work that way in, in China. Um, and the, the issue is whether that model is in some way replicatable or whether it's completely lodged within, you know, China's history and the way that its culture and the way that it, it developed over thousands of years. I think there's some of that. So I think there's definitely unique characteristics that that are applicable only to China. But China's done a couple things that that others can learn from. And this is very much, I think, relevant for our discussion in the African context. And, and the reason why this is relevant to Justin Lin is because he himself is the one who designed many of these policies. So let's talk about uh, agricultural reform. Let's talk about infrastructure development, focusing on the bread and butter issues. But at the core of what China was able to do was able to make a deal between its political leadership and its people. And then the political leadership said, if we are able to deliver an improved standard of living, then you will put aside your demands for political reform. That was the deal for the past 30 years. It's a deal that many people in the developing world, here in Vietnam, all throughout Southeast Asia, and many other countries, are willing to make because they want to have more food in their belly, a better apartment, they want more material goods, and frankly, political issues are not always the paramount concern. That said, 
Corruption, and this is where China and Africa have a lot in common, is eating away at that legitimacy and eating away at that deal. So one of the things you're seeing in China today is this huge, massive, violent, brutal crackdown on corruption that the that Xi Jinping is going after. I mean, huge players in the in the party. He's going after the military because Justin Lin and others have warned the leadership there that says if the corruption continues to get out of hand and it's out of hand. Um, the legitimacy of the party and the legitimacy of the government is in doubt. And you see this in Africa, that corruption is such a, has such a decaying quality to it that people are so demoralized by the fact that they can't start businesses, that they're kind of robbed and cheated every day through just by going in and interacting with the bureaucracy. And so I think if the Chinese can, can kind of show and demonstrate that they can bring the corruption under control, that will then take this economic model to the next level. And then we're going to start to see some political reforms, I think, in the next stage. But they will not be at the pace or scale, I think, that will make the West happy. In terms of Africa, I think that Africans have a lot more to learn from China and China's experience than they do from the West, only because the Chinese themselves were poorer than most African countries were 30 years ago. And what they've been able to do is in the context of a developing economy, as opposed to ideas that are formed in Jeffrey Sachs' think tank in, in, in Manhattan, which have no bearing or relevance oftentimes to the you know painful realities on the ground of life in developing countries. So in many ways, the ideas that we're seeing in China, I think are a good lab for other emerging markets, even in the question of democracy. And the idea I'm not suggesting that you people in Africa shouldn't have democracy. I am only suggesting that there are trade-offs that have to happen, that too much democracy can sometimes come at the, uh, at the expense of economic reform. And so there has to be a balance between the two. I would probably even flip that around and say that in a, in a way, China also has to look at Africa and like, learn from Africa in certain kind of ways. Because I think that that kind of link between that promise or that deal between we're going to have an author, somewhat authoritarian, centrally planned government. And in, you know, kind of, and if you go along with that and, and like kind of postpone your, your economic, your democratic hopes, there's going to be economic growth. That kind of deal, I think there was a different version of that similar kind of deal in Africa after colonization, after decolonization, I mean, you know, kind of in the 1950s and 60s. And I think what we see in Africa now is that the that that promise has completely broken down. You know, kind of there's no there's no trust between between African publics and African governments. Um and I think, you know, kind of and, and corruption definitely is I think probably the biggest reason. Um, you know, so what you see now is that there's this, this kind of interesting kind of like almost perverse other other kind of mirror image of this kind of national developmentalism that you see in East Asia mm -hmm. is is playing itself out in Africa where you know in East Asia you would you, you know kind of China um, hosts the Olympic Games, and then the, you know, kind of the entire energies of the of the entire society kind of gets somewhat forcibly, but also through enthusiasm and th also through kind of like identification, um, kind of you know, put behind this this entire process. Um, I think Africa is is closer to the, at the moment is closer to a situation like in Brazil, you know, kind of where the fact that there is this kind of big big event that's taking place, some kind of big developmental goal. So the World Cup in Brazil at the moment, or in South Africa, like, um, for example, an upcoming uh, big energy plant that that's supposed to be launching later this year, maybe, maybe next year. 
the the fact that this kind of this project is going is is running is actually leads to more labor protests and more problems because you know kind of because there's such a broken link there's such a broken trust between the government and the trade unions or between the government and the public that any kind of like big project has you know there's it it almost always leads to that project being held hostage by labor in order to get a little bit of something out of the government yeah because the government you know just sucks up all of the energy all of the money all of the you know kind of through through corruption through stagnation and so on, um, you know, kind of so that that anytime there is some kind of big event or big project on the horizon, it actually leads to more problems. Yeah, I mean, um, and you know, kind of, and I think I think that there is a that in the very first place should be a cautionary tale for China. Well, I, you know, you you suggested that maybe China has something to learn from Africa, and and frankly, I am extraordinarily skeptical. That the Chinese that they uh, will that they will. I mean, the, the Chinese really look for their development model. Look to South Korea, certainly Singapore, uh, these Confucian states in Asia that are homogeneous, that are you know have a very similar record from their own. That are also very much influenced by Chinese history and culture themselves. And it's part of the arrogance of the Chinese that. They, they aren't looking beyond to incorporate more ideas into their system. It's something that a lot of China experts talk about and that the Chinese need to in, in, engender more humility, certainly in their foreign policy, and, and be more receptive to these foreign ideas. Whereas, you know, China has a, a long history of being, you know, Zhongguo, which is the middle kingdom, which is the center of the universe. And for, for the vast majority of their history, they were and they defined themselves uh, as having the mandate of heaven uh, and being at the center of everything. And, and ideas, you know, didn't come to them. They emanated ideas. It was this Chinese exceptionalism, much like American exceptionalism. So um, I'd like and I hope that Chinese engagement in Africa will ultimately bring about what you are suggesting, although I'm not going to hold my breath for that. So, uh, listen, we, uh, we I think we've gotten so far into the academic weeds this time. Uh, this was a, a very esoteric conversation. Normally, our, our podcasts try to be a little more hands-on and practical, but uh, we're, you know, we, we thought we would take you down the road and introduce you to Justin Lin. Uh, we'd like to hear what you think. The Chinese model, the Western model, the European model. Uh, are there different models? There's the Indian model, which is different. Democracy plus economic development. And India's positioning itself as an alternative model to China. So what do you think is the best way uh, and most applicable for Africa? Maybe it's a little bit of everything. And I think that's one of the best ways to look at it as well. We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're almost at 190,000 followers from all over the world right now. Uh, I do have to apologize, though, Kobus, because the World Cup has uh, recently started and I think everybody is not focusing on news right now. Everybody is kind of looking at Brazil. There's no stories that we can post on the Facebook page. But normally, non-World Cup days, Kobus and I are posting uh, almost 18 hours a day. Kobus from South Africa, me from here in Asia, and uh, the top China-Africa stories. We put our names in brackets so you can actually see who's commenting. And we love getting into discussions and debates. And so this is a great opportunity for you to share some of your ideas on the topics that we brought up in the show. And uh, Kobus, beyond just Facebook, what's another way people can get in touch with you to find out what you're reading and writing these days? People can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is on iTunes. Just search for China Africa Project. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening.